Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to episode 357 of Sexology Podcast. As Halloween approaches, we're set to uncover the shadows of death fetishes a topic that as mysterious as it's intriguing. But first, a warm nod to Cozy Earth, our sponsor for today's episode. Not only has Cozy Earth graced Opera's favorite list for four years straight, but they also boast a confidence-inspiring 10-year warranty on all their products. There are on my favorite list as well. Maybe I'm not as popular as Opera yet. As the chill of autumn sets in, Imagine wrapping yourself in their sheets, which might I add, are softer than cotton and perfect for these seasonal nights. So Cozy Earth provide an exclusive offer for our listeners today, up to 40% off site-wide when you use the code SEXOLOGY. Again, the code is SEXOLOGY and you get up to 40% site-wide when you use our code. And thank you so much for supporting us. And I love you for that. Today, our speaker is Dr. Hartman with her expert insights from the realm of forensic sexology and her wonderful book, I Love Dead People. She has also her own podcast. You can read her full bio in the show notes. All right, let's dive in. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Victoria Hartman to our show. Victoria, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me today. I am very excited and looking forward to this conversation. When I reached out to you a few months ago, I read a contribution you had on one of the articles and I want to talk about a sexual skill. 
But then after rescheduling, I figured out you have this fantastic book about a very interesting topic. I was like, forget about that. (laughs) I want to learn more about this content. So tell us a little bit about about your book. Okay, so a little bit of background. I went and pursued my graduate degrees 2008-2009. And a particular interest to me was necrophilia. And that was born more out of just wanting to help criminologists and forensic researchers have better tools to be able to determine if someone was at risk for offending or not. Okay. And so that's what I pursued in my, both of my PhDs was this topic. And one was a statistical at PhD and the other one was more of a phenomenal PhD. And that's the one that the book was born out of. And what I did is for about 20 years, I sort of went underground and did field work in the online community where folks who have a necrophilic paraphilia and your, you know, listeners might know what a paraphilia is. It's a, what's a variant on sexual interest, right? So it's not just straight or, you know, missionary, et cetera. And there was, you know, for 20 years, I sort of navigated these online communities, not necessarily becoming a member, but more of an accepted observer. And what I noticed was a community of people who didn't cross over into offending. And that's who I was looking for initially. And so luckily, over 100 of them were willing to be interviewed by me for my first doctorate degree. And then in my second one, I did in-depth interviews with roughly, I think, 12 or 15. And I wrote the book largely based on my my dissertation of the second PhD, because it just was so interesting to me that there seemed to be this division between folks who had what I learned was called a death fetish and those who offend. So those go, who later on go on to commit crime. And that's what I wrote the book around because there seemed to be a, a very clear distinction between the two, which in the meantime, since I published that book, has become a bit more blurry. And so I'm writing two more books about that evolution. So right now. Fascinating. You know, as a sex therapist and a psychologist, the only context I read about necrophilia is on like a academic books, right? Yeah. I, it's really rare to work with someone that have the kind of information and expertise that you have. So it's wonderful that you've done that work. So tell us, what is necrophilia? So necrophilia, in essence, is the sexual interest in those who are deceased. Okay. I'll give you a great example that your listeners can look into. And it's a woman by the name of Karen Greenlee. And why she's of particular interest to me currently is the museum where I'm the executive director has acquired what is the... the only known artifact or art piece created by Karen Greenlee. Now, who is she? She has been coined the unrepentant necrophile because before she disappeared about 20 years ago or so, she had already had sexual relations with over 40 deceased men. Okay. So and the reason she's famous is because she's female. Necrophilia isn't all that uncommon. And I want to preface that with in the sexual literature, especially the academic literature, necrophilia isn't all that unusual. It has its own definition in the DSM. Okay. So that's what it is. However, there are sub genres of necrophilia that involve 
details all the way down to how someone might enjoy the deceased body having their eyes shifted to one form or one direction or the other, or whether or not they play with their belly buttons and what belly buttons mean as it relates to necrophilia. So there are these subcategories within that main category, and it generally doesn't include sexual murder or lust murder that's separate but sometimes they get lumped together and sometimes they are comorbid so you know that's what we see with serial killers a lot of the time is their necrophilia sometimes drives their crimes or are just incidental to their crimes fascinating so what i hear is like similar to other type of paraphilia there's a galaxy of different presentation yeah. what are some of the common ones that you came across when you were doing the interviews well, that was different between men and women. I didn't interview any trans or gender nonconforming people in this work. It was, it was, you know, binary folks, men or women. And among the men, the most common aspect was that the deceased body of a female was an unresisting partner. So someone that wouldn't reject them. And most often their desires towards this deceased female wasn't violent in nature. It was loving and doting and passionate and nurturing. They wanted to take care of that dead body. Amongst women, though, oftentimes it was preceded by violence in their fantasies and their, the perpetrator became their or their captor became the perpetrator for them and then hosted, you know, death they became the possession of the perpetrator, i.e. their captor. And that for them was this ultimate form of submission. So it had a, both had really strong BDSM context. And that's kind of where I, I figured out it went. It was definitely couched within BDSM because real life death was abhorrent to them. Real life harm was abhorrent to them. They wanted consenting partners that they could fantasize with or have these fantasies with. And even in their own fantasies, it, the fantasies were defined by them, not by someone else, right? Yeah. So for people that were not offenders, like it seems like that's the people that you focus on, the population you focus on. So it's it was more about kind of immersing in that fantasy with another consenting adult or engaging in kind of like some kind of a non-real situation. So these were not people who were having experiences with deceased people. Right. What was really interesting is the way that I framed the questions in my second dissertation were open-ended. I didn't want to lead the participants in any direction. I just wanted, and outside of those questions, they offered without any kind of prompt. It wasn't even a question that came up for me when I was creating, you know, when I was designing the, the research, they said, listen, real death is gross. It's, you know, I, I'm repulsed by it. I want nothing to do with it. The idea of a real corpse or is disgusting to me. And the second part that they generally offered without prompting was when I got on the internet, because they found others like themselves on the internet, that's where they first looked was they were absolutely terrified that they were going to turn into serial killers, that they were going to cross that line and they didn't want to because that wasn't what their fantasies were about. So, and that was, that was completely unexpected when I was doing, I was expecting exactly the opposite and really famous 
academic friend of mine, he often says, the great thing about science is you're usually wrong. And I was completely wrong <laughs> in my research. And it was wonderful because I found out a whole side of these folks that I wasn't even looking for. And what a gift that they had the opportunity to be part of these online communities, because I know with many people who are interested in any type of quote-unquote non-traditional sexual experiences, they might feel kind of shame. They feel kind of like marginalized when they're talking about it with people that they're not, they don't have the similar interest. Right. So what a gift that you they were able to be part of this community. So what were some of the exchanges in these communities about? Was it about support? Is it about ideas, meeting partners? Well, you know, initially, as people were now, the, this community that I was interviewing were some of the first people on the Internet. So they were starting to go from the bulletin boards and et cetera to websites. And they were, when they first got on the internet in the 90s, when it was more accessible to the general population, they literally looked up death fetishism, et cetera, and they created the initial community. And then it started snowballing and other people found them afterwards. And what the participants that I interviewed anyway found was initially they looked for out of fear. They were looking for solutions out of fear. You know, what about death beds? Am I, am I going to be a serial killer? Am I going to hurt people, et cetera? And once these communities started forming and they started communicating with each other, exchanging fantasies, living out, you know, role play online, sometimes they'd take pictures, you know, they'd just stage little scenes and so forth. It was this the original individuals who, when new people came in to find the same solutions and, and ask the same questions, it evolved into a kind of altruism for them where they wanted to be able to provide comfort and clarity for the new people who were coming in who were still afraid of themselves. Because, I mean, if you think about it, you are, you know, the interview participants that I spoke to started noticing these things about themselves at the ages of four and six and eight. And, you know, they'd play bang, bang, you're dead with an ant and found that they'd have some kind of a physical reaction to their part, their um, family member falling over dead and were terrified. It, even today with, you know, stigma around being LGBT, how does an LGBT teen go to their parents and say, oh, I'm attracted to the same sex when I'm 13 or 14 years old? Now imagine you're 12 or 13 years old and what turns you on is death. Who do you talk to? So you live in this abject state of fear, especially if you're not inclined, say, among serial killers where there's real harm towards animals as children, et cetera. And they're, you know, they, they hear how people talk about those who commit crimes. Imagine the kind of fear of oneself that, that one has when we're, you know, finding out about our own sexuality and it's centered around like the idea of someone dying or being dead. These online communities were places that they could go initially to find each other. And then later on, those original people be altruistic towards the newbies that were coming in. Well, I love all of this information so much that <laughs> I have so many questions about it. So what I hear that it's like self-acceptance piece was the biggest part of the gift of this community. So of course, like finding other ideas and partners and role plays added bonus, but I think yeah. not, not having access to people that are interested in the same thing can be isolating. And also it seems like what was interesting for people was that they, they found that, okay, you can be engaging in these fantasies. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're translate like, transforming to a serial killer. 
Right. And it, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that some people who are inclined towards criminal behavior didn't find their way there. The famous case out of Germany of the, you know, the the cannibal killer. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he found his way into these communities and found what his primary victim in this community. So unfortunately, those who do cross over to those criminal acts have been found on there, but not to any, I mean, like less than 1%. And the community is incredibly self-contained because they don't want that kind of individual in that community. For them, this is a fetish. This is a role play, a BDSM framework type of sexual interest. And the real acts are just not anything. They don't even want any participants in there that might be inclined towards doing something in real life. So yeah, it was what I noticed at the end of my second doctorate work was that there was a reduction in maladaptive behavior amongst those who had found the online community and people they could share this with. They were more able to live rich lives outside of the community because that part of them was taken care of in the community. And some even found partners there where they could indulge in these and, in, in, you know, in the staged BDSM framework fantasies with one another. Well, we talked about some of the misconception already. What I'm hearing is one of them was that not everyone who's interested in this, they're going to act on kind of like having sex with deceased people in, in reality. Was there any other misconceptions that you've noticed that the general public had about these these individuals that you think would be important for our listeners to know? Yeah, I think. This goes to any kind of paraphilic interest. We're very quick to judge. And I understand how this particular fetish can be very scary to those that aren't familiar with it, that don't share it. Like, how can you even, you know, fetishize this kind of thing? And even for those who have the paraphilia, it's a hard question to answer. They don't know. It's just something that they reacted to and it gives them a great deal of sexual pleasure. The the largest misconception really is, is that these folks are just as afraid of themselves as those who look from the outside in and are afraid of them. They don't want to hurt anyone. Does that mean that you just want to, you know, kind of just skip all the way into a community like that and go, oh, nothing's ever bad's going to ever happen? No, there's still caution that's necessary. Obviously, anytime we engage in something like this, but. What's interesting is the BDSM community has had more and more, Tashra is a good example of that. They've had more and more discussions about extreme levels or extreme types of BDSM play, psychological play, and that people want to indulge in these things. They just don't know how and accidentally harm others during play. And Tashra and organizations like them are trying to educate the public on how to engage in extreme play and psychological play and minimize harm as much as possible. I'm glad that now we have those resources. And I also know that with any kind of anonymous interaction or internet kind of virtual interaction, there is a higher risk because it's harder to assess what's happening. All sorts of kind of different experiences. So it makes sense that in those platforms also, there were people that were just like, had different intentions than like what the majority of the community was looking for. So one of the things I hear people say that there is a correlation between suppression in the real world and the emergence of unusual fetishes. Is that true? I don't know 
You know, there's this debate, and you might be familiar with this. There's a debate among sexologists whether or not paraphilias are even a thing, whether or not we can even use that word to define unusual sexual interests. I would argue that suppression of who we are sexually can lead to maladaptive behavior in other parts of life, such as, you know, uh, substance abuse, workaholism. You know, if we're if we aren't fully authentic ourselves, or we're trying to hide parts of ourselves, that doesn't just go away. It it comes out in other ways, and most of the time in maladaptive behavior and self harm. So as for the paraphilias themselves, we don't know how paraphilias come about. We don't know if they're genetic. We don't know if it's environmental or psychological, you know, and in the interviews that I've done, because most of my peers that study this study criminal minds, they don't study the paraphilics that are just, you know, fetishists. So that's a hard question to answer simply because an origin of, of paraphilias is so elusive. Is it possible that suppression can create them? Sure. It's also possible that we have them in our DNA. That's the ongoing question. You know, and the thing that I'm learning now as I'm writing these two new books is you just never know when that person who is inclined, and this was a shock to me because I really thought there was this black and white line, right? And I was like, oh, well, they have to have a comorbid personality disorder and access to personality disorder. Not necessarily. No, the the research that's coming out now is the crossover point is undefined and we can't predict it. So that's a really great question. I wish I had an answer, but that's what's so great about science is it's every time you answer a question, another mystery pops up. (laughs) I love that. And I personally don't like it when people say it's like, tell us exactly where it's coming from. (laughs) Because I feel like we don't have the information. (laughs) They're like, no. Buckets of studies, cluster of studies saying something. There are some smaller clusters talking about something else. So I get, I get that how challenging it is to come up with the exact kind of origin and correlation and all of that in yeah. our field. So I'm thinking about kind of people who are interested in kind of like that fetishes. So when I think about fetishes, my understanding is the fixed erotic template. Like you got to have this as part of your experience. So based on the interviews you had with people, was that the experience of people? It was like they, this needed to be part of their experience. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to have kind of arousal, experience arousal and have partner experiences. Some. And some, for some, the experience had to be very specific. Let's use an example of, like I can't, like I mentioned earlier, some of the folks who are in the community, their imaginary corpses had to be laying in a certain position had to be wearing a certain kind of clothes or not, had to have their eyes in a particular position. Their skin tone had to be a certain way. For some, it was so fixated that anything other would just do nothing for them. And that created its own problems in partnered sexual, you know, connection. Others for, you know, it was, it was very fluid and they could take it one way, one time, and then another way, another time, just like anyone really sexually. Some people are just much more rigid and some people are much more fluid. And I found that same thing in the deaf fetish community too. And that makes sense that they kind of like to, for some people, there's this particular scenario and script that was working. And it seems like for some people, there was just like more flexibility around that template. Since you talk to people who were like non, in a way, quote unquote, non-offending, people who didn't want to act out on this kind of like experiences with deceased people, 
What's been your experience about how clinicians, because many of the people are clinicians or listen to our show, to assess for potential harm? Is that something that they can do? Well, that's a really great question. And that's where I come to the classification tool that I and my co-author designed because we noticed that the two systems that are being used right now, not to discount the importance of those, which of course are Rosman and Resnick and Agrawal's classification system. Rosman and Resnick were the first scholars to come up with anything uh, around necrophilia. And so they were the foundation of further research. And, and then Agrawal came in after, and he developed the classification system. But one of the things that I noticed having navigated these communities for as long as I did, and, and my co-author as well, is the level of severity didn't make any sense in Agrawal's classification system. So just as an example, offending necrophiles, he placed in a lighter category than romantic necrophile. And that didn't make sense to us because, well, just from a basic standpoint, a necrophile like Ted Bundy is out there versus someone who's digging up someone out of a grave in order to wash their body and it, I, I didn't, the, the, the order didn't make any sense. And so with our system, we actually dissect not only what parts of the body they fetishize, but in what way they create this fantasy around, say, gun use or what have you in, in their fantasy, to whether or not they have obvious cluster B disorder signs or signals. There, we just, it was a very elaborate, classification system and didn't have an order. It, and that's what we found in the one that we designed is there was no order and severity because each individual case was unique. So we we had hoped that this new tool would be of great use to clinicians and to criminologists. And I do a lot of forensic work myself. And what we found was is that a lot of scholars just kind of fall back on Rosman and Resnick and Agarwal because they are very black and white. They're linear. Um, even though the level of severity isn't linear in Agarwal's work, they are linear as a general rule. And ours is not. Ours is very nuanced. So we will see. I mean, I'm going to, and the other thing that we found that most scholars and clinicians had an argument with is we were using hypothetical cases instead of real life cases. And that created a challenge for us getting our work published in academic journals because the journals wanted real cases and they kept returning our, our papers for revisions or rejection because there were no actual cases. So with these two new books that I'm writing, I'm using, I'm, I'm actually going and doing forensic research on 20 actual cases so that I can update our tool with actual cases and present those to journals. So I'd say right now it's up in the air. Lee, I'm trying to think, there's another scholar. I can't think of his name right now. He's done two or three classification systems as well, but they are also very nuanced. And I think that makes clinicians uncomfortable. We want something very clear and, and, and easy to interpret and Anything from a you know a fetishist online to Ted Bundy are complicated. They're just complicated. So the answer is, do we have something that we could use to predict? Nope. Are we working towards that? Yep. 
Have we gotten there yet? Nope. <laughs> Victoria, I think it's amazing that you're doing this work because I think, again, most most colleagues, even kind of like people who are doing sex therapy, unless they work in a criminal kind of system or forensic psychology, like all the cases, as you said, are fictitious. They're just like the cases that's not accurate depiction of what people are experiencing. How wonderful that you're creating this, created this tool. Can you tell us more about what, what does it entail? Well, so one of the things that we noticed was, and I, I'm negotiating with a new co-author. I don't want to mention his name right now, but he's pretty well known in our field, in the sexological field. And we might be doing further submissions. So in other words, once I've got these actual cases, I might be retooling the tool and resubmitting with him as a co-author. And one of the things in criminology, when you take a case, when you're examining a criminal case, you take note of where the wounds are and what the depths of the wounds are and the placement of them, because you want to determine whether or not this was a sadistic uh, crime or if it was a crime of passion or it was accidental or it was drug fueled or what have you. And those same elements were important for us to add, which, you know, all of the other tools did not, because that says something about the individual and their motivation. Okay. So it's that specific. We also try to identify whether or not a particular act is ethical or not, and whether or not it's ethical based on the individual's perception of what their ethics are. So in other words, if they have a fa a, a, a fantasy about violating a corpse and for them it's an ethical act in their mind then they might not experience distress as a result i mean one of the things we talk about when we talk about any kind of disorder in the dsm is whether or not it causes distress well if that individual doesn't have any distress around the act that they're performing can it be defined as unethical how do we how do we judge that societally or individually from a psychological perspective sociologically, anthropologically, like how do we, and that's how specific this tool is that we've designed, which of course adds a lot of nuance and a lot of elements that are probably too weight bearing for most folks to be able to use. And I really don't know how to simplify it because it tends to be that complicated when we're talking about these kinds of paraphilias. Well, it makes sense. And I was thinking about even the reality testing part of things. Like you said, the intention, the kind of like all the action, all of these kind of different things can mean different kind of like maybe level of harm as, as you're talking about. So I think it's it's great that your scale, it seems like being more complicated and, and I can see it can be very beneficial. So for our listeners, that they, they have a type of fetish that they have shame about, or if they have dead fetishes, and they're just uncomfortable with that, what advice or resources would you recommend? Where death fetishism is concerned, because I've been out of the death fetish community online for a number of, almost a decade now as a researcher, I hear sort of on the periphery how the community is shaping itself. There seems to be divisions between sort of crime scene magazines of the 1950s with, you know, pinup type style ideas and, and, and depictions, and then those that are much more sort of modern day true crime-ish. So I don't know the level of supportiveness that exists in the communities, as well as 
because they've faced so many challenges with credit card processing, because, you know, having a website up costs money, even if it's just a message board or it costs money. And these websites notoriously lose their, their, you know, merchant processing. I mean, even mainstream adult creators do at this point, only fans and these, they, Pornhub, they lose their, their merchant processing too. So I don't know how much information is available out there. And largely the focus is still criminological in nature when we're talking about necrophilia. So that's a, that's a tough answer. That's a tough question because where to send someone? Well, the communities that used to be largely rooted in altruism might not exist anymore. And, you know, therapists understandably are concerned about being too supportive in someone who has a death fetish and inadvertently they are, you know, feeling that they might come to the conclusion, well, I can harm and it should be okay because I accept myself. You know what I mean? Karen Greenlee, I come back to Karen Greenlee. She ended up seeing a, a sex positive therapist from what I understand back in the nineties and came to accept the fact that she was a necrophiliac, not sure once she disappeared. And she went on kind of a speaking tour about self-acceptance, sexual self-acceptance, et cetera, but got so much backlash that she ended up changing her name several times and has oh, been, wow. yeah, she, she's disappeared for the last 20 years. Nobody knows where she is. So whether or not she's continued to find ways to indulge in her her fetish, which is real life, I don't know. So I can understand how therapists would be concerned about clients who come to them and say, I have a death fetish. Like that's how do you how do you deal with that as a therapist? Right. And that's still an ongoing question. Well, it's also again, even in the world of like certified sex therapists, I think there are many sex positive clinicians, but I think kind of like assessing, assessing the level of harm, like helping people. I think those are all specialized tools that people need and training they need to cultivate in order to do those assessments. Is there any books that like your book, does it speak to that component? Are there books that would be helpful for general public that you would recommend? My book definitely is one of those because it talks about fetishists particularly and the kind of shame and guilt that they find they come to these communities with. And then these communities help to resolve that shame and that guilt because they then come to understand that that really is a fetish. I would say the best place to go, and I know this is a little, you know, unorthodox, is to organizations like TASHRA. BDSM organizations that are doing clinical work, that are training clinicians on extreme BDSM scenes and psychological play. TAFRA is doing legitimate academic research. So I would say anyone with an extreme fetish like this, there are others too that I could name, is to seek out clinically competent BDSM organizations that are doing research and that are training clinicians like TAFRA is. Beautiful. So I bet many of our listeners want to get a hold of your book. They want to get a hold of you. What are some of the best places to connect with you? Well, I have a podcast just like you do. It's called Sex Nerd Podcast. And I talk about, I have two kind of directions that my podcast goes into. One is mainstream sexology. And I talk about relationships and kink, et cetera. And then I also have a true crime, true crime element of that, especially as I'm writing these two new books. So, so they're more, it's very easy. It's Sex Nerd Podcast on YouTube. I put out an episode every week. My book is available on Amazon. It's I Love Dead People Inside the Minds of Death Fetishists. And it's on Amazon. You can get it real easy. There are two 
bookstores that are carrying my book. One is the Cemetery Pulp store here in Las Vegas over on Sunset Boulevard. And then there is the Spooks Boutique in Salt Lake City. They're carrying my book as well. Thanks to both of them for that. And uh, and then, of course, the book is available at the Erotic Heritage Museum, where I'm the director. And and that's really the easiest place. I mean, I travel a lot for the for my work, but that's kind of the easiest place to to find me is or at the museum through our you know general mailbox. Then my staff will forward it to me, and and I can answer questions along those lines. And I do do speaking engagements as well. They've been selling out lately, so it's been yeah, actually not just selling out, but they've been having to add seats. Which I've been talking about this topic for ten years now, and all of a sudden with true crime sort of having this resurgence of interest, people are coming you know to to these lectures again, and it's been kind of cool because they have all kinds of really great idea like questions. So it's been pretty nice. Well, that's fantastic that you're doing this work and I'm excited to check out your podcast. Especially with the special twist that it has. It's it's great that you're doing this work. Thank you so much for coming on this show. Please come back when you have the additional book. So we would love to continue this conversation. Then. That sounds great. Thank you so much. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. It's fascinating that Sometimes the topic that seem unusual, but when we dig deeper, when we truly listen and seek to understand the origins and experiences behind these desires, they often begin to resonate. A few weeks ago, I was contributing to an article that one of the friends was publishing at Cosmo about the kink that some people have about swallowing their sexual partner. I had clients in the past that they expressed those interests, but I was looking at the research studies about the origin of these tendencies. And they were talking about how it comes from our childhood and the fictional stories that we hear. And that totally started making sense to me. If by the time this episode is out, the article is out, I leave a link in the show note to that. Speaking of personal stories and intimate moments, let me share a brief tale of my own. A few years ago, I discovered the magic of cozy earth sheets. They sent me one set since they were my sponsor and I got hooked. Since then, I purchased several sets and their pajamas and the other things that I offer on their website. She's have tons of cool things. And it's very interesting. A few nights ago, when during sex, my husband and I started feeling too hot. So we paused. My husband turned to me and said, honey, where are our cozy earth sheets? We end up switching to our trusted cozy earth sheet simply because of the unmatched comfort and temperature regulation they offer. True story. I'm not making it up. If you would like to try their sheets, their pajamas, all the great things they offer, you can put the code SEXOLOGY to get 35% discount site-wide. The code is SEXOLOGY. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.